So I am here with Adrian Pineda, who is a manager and scientist here at Biorad Labs, but has a history in vaccine developments. So can you tell me anything about your previous job, you know, who you worked for and what you did? Sure. So I used to work for two vaccine manufacturers. One was a startup, and they used uh, viral-mediated vectors to create vaccines. So that means that they used transgenic viruses and actually stuffed them with components of other viruses and bacteria to try and generate immune responses. And then most recently, I worked at a large manufacturer for uh, vaccines, most specifically flu and a couple others. At this manufacturer, we used uh, what's called recombinant protein vaccines. They're a form of a biologic, and they're one of the more common vaccines that you get uh, pretty much whenever you go to the doctor. So what goes into making a vaccine? Like, what are the steps from one, two, three, four to getting the shot in the arm or wherever you get the shot? Sure. So um, vaccine manufacturing and development is a really extensive process. It takes a long time. It starts early on with research and development, typically a disease that they want to cure, the flu, measles, mumps, whatever is uh, plaguing humanity. They go through a little bit of R&D, trying to find a way to defeat the virus or the bacteria using our own immune system. So whatever proteins or DNA needs to be injected, that's what they're looking for, to get an immune response to make you immune to the virus. Once that's done and they've figured that out at a research and development stage... How long does that take to actually figure that out? Years, sometimes decades. A lot of that work is initially done in academic universities where they identify good targets to go after for immune responses, or maybe they do some of the initial mouse model work. Then once it gets to a company, it's years and years more research. You know, I think to take a drug to market from initial R&D, if it's at the manufacturing level, all the way through testing, 10 years to market. So, and that's once it gets to a manufacturer. That's not including the work that was done beforehand. So it takes a long time. And is part of that research and development making sure that it's not just effective, but it's also safe? Absolutely. So initial parts are done on mouse model systems. They're done with uh, cell culture. Initially, they do a lot of toxicology studies on them to make sure the dosing isn't going to kill cells, isn't going to kill animals, that they're getting an effective immune response. Once they move from the animal or mouse model and they start going into humans, there's a very described way in which drugs are tested, and they go through phase trials. So there's phase one, phase two, phase three, and then release into the public. And so um, these case studies are very well controlled. So the initial phase one, they're usually looking at toxicology. Will healthy people withstand the dosage? What kind of level they can inject someone with before side effects are seen? And where the best um, crossover is really between effectiveness and side effect. And that's what they're looking for, is how do you get the best immune response in the most amount of people with the least amount of side effects? Once that happens, they start expanding the trials to larger and larger populations with more and more diverse biological backgrounds. So initially, you might think they're looking at healthy individuals. They may be looking at a certain population mix. But then as they expand it, because most vaccines are intended to go to the entire global population, then they start adding in diversity and start randomizing, not randomizing, but they start selecting a little less carefully who's involved because they want results that will mimic the natural population. Um, during that entire time, they study every single side effect. Everything that happens is noted, whether it happened in the control group, which is people who are not injected, versus people who are injected and what their side effects are. 
Um, and those are always reported after the test. So are those the side effects that you see the laundry list whenever you watch a commercial and you see, you know, the, the side effects may include headache, dizziness, you know, that laundry list that happens on those. Is, is that what's being reported as any side effect that happens during the study? Any side effect. Any side effect. Any side effect. And they're not removing the control side effects as well and saying, well, this group had headaches and that group had headaches. So we're not going to report it. They still report it. What they do look at is kind of the more serious uh, events. That's when they start pulling it out. So if you start seeing deaths because of the vaccine, they're going to want to compare that to deaths on the other side. But yeah, that laundry list of, um, of precautions is really just them saying this is all of the things that happened. And maybe by the time they get to a phase three trial, you're talking hundreds of thousands of people may have been injected with this. And you can imagine if you're going to follow somebody for one, three, five years to find out how long the effect is going to take, people are going to have things that happen to them that are not related to the vaccine itself. And those are still recorded because it's part of the clarity of the drug. These are highly regulated, highly investigated drugs. Going to how vaccines started way back at the very beginning, do you have knowledge of how safe were they back in the day versus how they are now? So one of the things to think about with vaccine safety, because there are a lot of people who talk, I want safer vaccines, or they want to know what the side effects are. Vaccines have probably the highest safety standard of any drugs on the market. And the reason being is if you had some type of pathology, if you were sick, let's say you had heart disease, and I wanted to give you a drug, you're going to look at that drug and say, heart disease is going to kill me. What's the side effect of the drug? Well, as long as it's not death, you're going to be pretty likely to take it. So the companies know that your threshold for risk is much higher than if you were healthy. Now, if you're completely healthy and I say, hey, Chelsea, here's a drug and I'm going to give it to you and you know there's a list of side effects, you're a lot less likely to take it because you're currently completely healthy. They really go through an effort to make sure they're safe when they give it to you because they're giving it to healthy people. And no one wants a drug to make a healthy person sick. They wouldn't sell it anymore. They wouldn't be able to. Yeah, exactly. No one would buy it. They'd say, well, maybe I can get sick from the flu, but eh, this thing's going to get me sick too, so I don't really want to take it. All right. So speaking, you brought up the flu and you've worked on flu vaccine development. Mm -hmm. What is different? Because you, you get a flu vaccine every year, right? I mean, I think you've had the flu vaccine this year. I have. And, you know, uh, sometimes it protects you, sometimes it doesn't. What makes it different? You know, why do people need to keep going back year after year after year to actually get the flu vaccine? Sure. So there's a couple reasons. Um, so I did get the flu vaccine this year and I also got the flu. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm definitely one of those individuals that got vaccinated and got the flu. What I can tell you is that the flu vaccine I received only had about three, four, or maybe five flu in it that um, I would be protected against. Uh -huh. And that's if my body created an immune response to every single strain that was in there. Okay. Now, there are several things that affect the efficacy of a flu shot, which means how effective it is. One of them is... Did they actually inoculate me with a flu strain that I contracted? I don't know because they didn't type the flu that I got. So maybe it wasn't included in that flu vaccine, which is exactly why I got it. There are hundreds of different flus out there. Any one of them could get you sick if you're not immune to it. The second reason I could have gotten sick is my own genetics. It's very possible that I was inoculated with the right strain and my body just didn't convert for some reason uh, all vaccines have a fail rate. The flu is one of the higher fail rates of the vaccines, and that's due to the third reason why the flu doesn't always work. 
So unlike most vaccines that are tested for a decade, that they're looking for the perfect antigen, which gives them the highest percentage chance of converting somebody to immune. They spend enormous amounts of money doing that and time. And then when they get it, it's a vaccine that you take once and usually you're done or you get a booster. That's because the virus itself doesn't change over time. The flu does change. Um, the flu undergoes two types of changes. One is called antigenic shift and the other is called antigenic drift. Either one of those allows the flu to escape your immune system. So um, that's why we need a new flu every single year, a new vaccine, because a new one shifts or drifts away from the old uh, vaccine and you're no longer immune to it. So the flu is kind of like a tricky little guy. It is. The moment you know what they look like, they change their appearance like they're some secret agent and all of a sudden <laughs> they get by you. So um, in actually developing the vaccine, you know, you have the target and then you have to take, grow it up, I'm guessing, and then somehow purify that, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the steps in that? Well, depends on which flu you get. The okay. Vaccine. Okay. So this is another reason why flu vaccines are not always effective. So um, as I said before, every year the flu changes. So every year they make a new vaccine because they make a new vaccine every single year. They can't test it. It's not as good. When they do make it finally, the vast majority of flu vaccines are manufactured in eggs. So they take a flu vaccine that infects humans. They merge it with a flu that infects chickens and they create this kind of seed virus that they then inject into eggs. This uh, sounds like the start of a zombie movie right it now. It most certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've got a chicken flu that you've kind of created in a lab, and now you have to infect chicken eggs. Okay. You harvest the flu from the chicken egg. You purify the proteins that you need, and you create a vaccine. Well, flu doesn't replicate in a chicken. It replicates in us when we generate an immune system to it. And um, there are just differences in the way proteins are modified within a chicken compared to a human. And so sometimes we get a virus that grows in a chicken, but then once you put it in a human, the human doesn't create the proper immune response. That's why you hear things like, oh, this year's flu vaccine wasn't very good, or it had a very low uh, efficacy rate. There was something about the way that vaccine was made that it just wasn't ideal for humans. They don't test them because they, they have very little time from when they detect a bad flu strain somewhere in the world and becoming the new predominant flu of the year. They have from then until usually less than six to nine months before it started spreading across the entire globe. And so that's how long they have to develop it. Okay. Um, so that's one type of flu vaccine. The other type is made in cell culture. And there are several companies that are doing this. This is uh, what I used to do was I worked at a company who was uh, manufacturing flu on cell culture. So cell cultures use mammalian cells, so they're a lot closer to us in what they manufacture, and they tend to give a little bit better immune response. At least that's what some of the research is showing. Um, so it depends on which one you get, how it's made. There's a lot of things that affect uh, how good the flu vaccine itself is. So if, you know, they're, they growing them in the tissue culture cells is more similar to it being in humans, why is egg production of flu vaccines still being used, do you think? Because it's a 70-year-old technology. Seven or 70? 70. 70 years. Yes. Okay. It's about uh, it's about 60 to 70 years old that okay. they've been doing this. Uh, it's cheaper right now because they've been doing it for so long. And um, I think it's just a better known technology. The big disadvantage to it, um, even though it's a very mature technology, is that 
On occasion, we had this happen a few years ago, there was a chicken flu epidemic and people were killing chickens by the billions. Well, that made the cost of chicken eggs skyrocket. If you remember a few years ago, chickens were kind of scarce and it was hard to get eggs. It also drove the cost of the flu vaccine up. So if we were to ever have a flu outbreak that did wipe out bird populations, our source to make the vaccine itself would be gone. And so would omelets. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, history of vaccines. So what do you know about the history of vaccines? Oh, they have a great history. So vaccines were first developed by, uh, by Jenner. So Jenner was a physician back uh, in the days. When he was a physician, smallpox was kind of ravaging the world. Yeah, that, that's, a that, lot. That, that's right. It was, I think it was two to three people out of 10 that it, that it infected, it, it, it killed. Yeah, and so it was a really high death rate. And what Jenner uh, noticed was that milkmaids seemed to be immune to getting smallpox. So he did a little work and he noticed that the milkmaids would get these blisters on their hands and that the blisters were from cowpox, which was a known virus at the time or a known disease at least. And it had similar features to smallpox. It created pus-filled blisters on the udders of the cow. So the milkmaids would get little pus blisters on their hands when they would first get exposed to cowpox. Then they would never get smallpox Uh, after that. And so he started putting two to two together and thought, you know, maybe it's infection with cowpox that makes us immune to smallpox. So we found a a boy, it turned out to be an eight-year-old boy that was the son of his gardener. And he asked permission if he could vaccinate him. And what they did is they took the child over to a milkmaid. They looked for the uh, pus on the hands of the milkmaid. And then they took little uh, pieces of the pus and would actually insert it under the skin of the boy. And then that would give him an infection. And that was one thing, you know, people knew that you could give a disease from one person to another. Yeah. But what the game changer was, and if you try to do this today, I cannot imagine what the outrage would be. But he then exposed the boy intentionally to smallpox to make sure that he wouldn't get sick. And then they repeated this something like 20 or 30 more times to prove that this was really how it was done. So initial smallpox vaccine was simply transferring the pus from cowpox to individuals. Something that we talk about in the, um, in the vaccine world, or I've certainly talked about with coworkers, is that you know, 50, 60 years ago, or if possibly you went to a country that doesn't have a lot of vaccines now, you're gonna see people walking around everywhere that has diseases that are preventable by vaccines. Like polio 80, 90 years ago, you're gonna see, or I guess it's polio would have been 100 years ago, you're gonna see kids that are crippled, you're going to see uh, adults in iron lungs, you don't see that anymore. Vaccines are now so effective, people don't really believe that the diseases they prevent are that severe anymore because they don't see it. So in essence, vaccines are kind of, they're kind of hindered by their own success. They've been so wildly successful at curing all of these diseases that used to be endemic within the last 200 years, that everybody's forgotten what it's like to see that. So people don't really understand the uh, real severity that these diseases bring. It's not just a cough and you're okay. It's That's a very good point. The vaccines have kind of buffered us from being able to see what, what the diseases actually can cause. You know, we, we don't see that. Do you know any differences between the U.S. and the rest of the world in terms of the vaccines that we give here versus everywhere else? Sure. Um, One of the most popular vaccines that varies in the U.S. uh, versus the rest of the world is the polio vaccine. 
So I think we, um, a lot of us probably remember sugar cubes when we were younger or hearing stories about being given sugar cubes for the polio vaccine. I've heard stories, but I was given the shot. You were given the shot. Okay, I was definitely given the cubes. I remember that. The sugar cubes are still given all over the world. So that's the oral polio vaccine, the OPV. The oral polio vaccine is really popular because um, it's cheaper. So countries that don't have quite as much money as we do can get 10 to 20 times the number vaccinated per dollar amount spent. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's much cheaper for other countries to do. Um, the Kind of the reasons we don't use it in the U.S. is that this is a live attenuated virus. So they took the polio vaccine, they cultured in a lot of different animals to make it really weak at infecting humans and really good at infecting other animals. They then gave those vaccines to individuals. You eat it, it's alive, but it's pretty weak. In almost all people that take it, they don't uh, get polio. But I think it's about one in two million actually develops polio from the vaccine itself and then is capable of infecting other people. So we don't do that here in the U.S. We, um, we use the IPV, which is the inactivated polio vaccine. So that's the shot. goes into your arm. Like I said, it's a little bit more expensive. But this is dead polio virus. It's not capable of replicating. Um, but when you get this injection, it's a little bit more effective. So in manufacturing vaccines, what are the different purification steps and how is it done? Um, and are there, you know, what methods are used? Sure. Um, so I, uh, I was listening to a previous podcast where you talked about the first biologic, which was uh, insulin. So the vast majority of vaccines that are made are biologics themselves. These are bioactive molecules. They have to be produced and purified. And much like insulin, they use chromatography for the main production and purification process. There are very few ways that you could get a sample as pure without chromatography. It really depends on the vaccine, what steps in chromatography, but they're gonna use all of the standard ones. Ion exchange, they're gonna do, um, that's gonna be the main one. They might use mixed mode like CHT resins. Uh, I know those are used in a lot of different vaccines like Gardasil. And then uh, beyond that, it's just gonna be your standard biologics manufacturing. So you mentioned the fact that you can orally ingest something and develop a antibody response to it. You know, parents uh, in the U.S. have gotten very defensive of all of the shots and vaccines that they're giving their children and that it's a little bit too aggressive. But can you talk about the fact that, you know, how ingesting something still is generating an uh, immunologic response? Sure. Um, Well, you know, we all eat things every day. We've all eaten something and gotten sick from it. So that creates an immune response right in of itself. If you've ever had food poisoning, your body created an immune response. That's a time where you actually got sick Mm -hmm. and you knew about that. But there are many times a day where maybe you touched something and you put it into your mouth and didn't realize it, or you ate some food in a place you've never been to, and it didn't make you sick, but your immune system was still exposed to those hundreds of bacteria and viruses every single day. Uh, Our body spends an enormous amount of effort defending our GI tract from viruses because the two most common ways to get a pathogen in is into your lungs or through your mouth. And um, we have gigantic immune sensing regions in our intestines, in our uh, colon that survey all of the pathogens that are in there. They're not accustomed to seeing one, they're accustomed to seeing thousands. And so, Eating a vaccine would be a very normal and natural way that the body would encounter a virus anyways. So putting it in a sugar cube would be a very reasonable thing to do. 
And so for children, this is a very natural, like their their immune system is constantly making antibodies to everything they put in their mouth. Absolutely. If you think about a baby, it's it's in a womb for nine to 10 months and it develops in, I wouldn't call it sterile, but a pretty sterile environment. It's only gonna get what the mother's exposed to. Then it's born and immediately has contact with humans, it has contact with doctors, starts putting things in its mouth. And so the baby, from the moment that it's born, starts ingesting pathogens immediately. The immune system kicks off and starts adapting to these, responding to them appropriately. Um, it's, uh, their immune system is in, in peak form until they're about two. And during this time at two, this is when uh, you see a lot more um, sickness just from the wild. It's also where they're lear- their body's learning what to fight and what not to fight. So I would say that babies go through this probably every minute of their life being attacked by pathogens and having their immune system respond. So we've seen an increase in the number of unvaccinated persons, especially among amongst children. And we are also seeing a rise in the number of cases of the measles, for example. You know, what is the, you know, what is the link between these two things? Sure. Well, it's a direct link. Uh, All of these vaccines have had extensive research on them. Epidemiologists spend a lot of time figuring out what the correct number of people that need to be vaccinated is. This is based on how effective the vaccine is. And once you get to this kind of critical number for a vaccine, they call it herd immunity. Once X percentage of the population is vaccinated, then it confers a much larger uh, group of people that are immune. So the concept of herd immunity is pretty uh, simple. In order for somebody to get a virus, they have to be near a virus. So if we had a room of 100 people and only 10 people in there were vaccinated, it'd be pretty easy for one person to bump into somebody in that room and give them the virus. Now, if you say have 97% of that room vaccinated and there are only three that are not, maybe they're immunocompromised or uh, they've got some other health uh, situation where they can't take it. The chance that an infected individual, so it would be one of those three people, Mm -hmm. would randomly bump into one of the other two people in the room that are unvaccinated is very low. And so even though 97% of the room is vaccinated, in essence, those two are unlikely to get infected. And that's what's occurring in these areas. People aren't getting the measles vaccines. And because of that, they're dropping below that critical threshold for herd immunity. And that increases the chances of passing it to somebody who may be a child who um, has cancer or some other immune compromising disease. And now they're going to get infected because they didn't have the opportunity to get vaccinated. We should talk about the elephant in the room in terms of the paper that was scientifically disproven as well as being shown as scientifically unfound. But, you know, why should people not be concerned about this, you know, that don't necessarily have scientific degrees like we do? Sure. Um, So I would say that, you know, it's certainly smart to always be concerned about whatever drug or vaccine you put in your body because things can have side effects. Autism, however, is not one of the side effects that have been shown for vaccines. The link to autism was shown by a, um, a doctor who had some nefarious reasons of his own, I believe, for uh, casting aspersions on the MMR vaccine at the time. This individual was trying to market their own MMR vaccine. So, you know, the, the, where it started from, um, I would say, didn't have the best of intentions. And I think it kind of steamrolled for there. Like I talked before, 
Anytime you put a drug in your body when you're not sick, people worry about it. Here was somebody saying, if you're a completely healthy individual and you take this vaccine, you may get autism or some of these other effects. And it had exactly the effect that he wanted it to, which is people now started doubting MMR. From there, it grew to, well, it's not just MMR, it's other vaccines because they started thinking, well, it's the adjuvant that's used or it's just vaccine technology in general is going to cause this. So it's really ballooned from that initial claim, but that's where it came from. And I would say that as a scientist, one, um, it really bothers me when people lie. Um, I know it happens in the world, but it's our job to tell the truth and let people decide what they want to do from that. When we start um, making things up out of convenience, it really casts a doubt on the entire science, which is exactly what has happened. Um, the other thing that's a little bothersome about it is that there are now people who are not getting vaccinated for it. There's no link to autism. We've spent enormous amounts of money. You can go online. They are now doing 100,000 multi-million person studies to find links of vaccine issues with autism or other neuropathologies, and they cannot find it. So not only was the claim kind of spurious to begin with, it's now diverted enormous amounts of effort and money trying to disprove a claim that was never true to begin with. All right. Thank you so much, Adrian, for coming in and talking with me today. Not a problem. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.